to the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Anil Seth. Anil is a neuroscientist and professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience at the University of Sussex. Our conversation was all about the neuroscience of consciousness, which is the subject of his new book, Being You, A New Science of Consciousness. We covered a good amount of ground in the conversation. We touched on everything from what consciousness actually is, according to Anil, whether or not neuroscientists can measure different levels of consciousness in the brain between people in vegetative states or those asleep versus waking, for example, what characterizes psychedelic experiences and non-ordinary states of consciousness in terms of the brain, and the nature of perception. In particular, we discussed ideas related to the notion that our conscious perceptions may be a kind of inference or guess that our brains are making about the world. We discussed the difference between exteroception, perceiving things outside of the body, like objects, and interoception, perceiving things within the body, and how that relates to emotion. We also talked about what Anil's take was on whether consciousness is adaptive in an evolutionary sense, as well as his take on whether it's likely that the subjective effects of psychedelics are important, an important component for their therapeutic effects for neuropsychiatric disorders. So if you're interested in neuroscience, and especially the neuroscience of consciousness. This is a really interesting conversation. Uh, I think in many ways, the name of the podcast, Mind and Matter, is reflected in this conversation, perhaps more so than any other podcast I've done so far. And also check out Anil's book if you're interested in diving deeper. As always, if you enjoy the content of this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. You can support the podcast directly by becoming a patron on Patreon. You can also support the podcast directly by subscribing to my Substack, which contains a lot of free content. That's at mindandmatter.substack.com, or you can give the podcast a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Dr. Anil Seth. Professor Anil Seth, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you start off by briefly describing for everyone who you are and, and what you're doing? I'm a professor of cognitive and computational neuroscience. So my main research interest revolves around probably what's one of the oldest questions in the book, which is consciousness, the nature of subjective experience. How do conscious experiences relate to, depend on, emerge from the wetware, the biological stuff inside our brains and bodies. And for me, this is a, an intrinsically interdisciplinary exercise. So in my research with my colleagues and lab members, we range from philosophy, mathematics to psychology, brain imaging, virtual reality, lots of different approaches that try to retain as a common focus how to explain properties of consciousness in terms of the brain and body. And so just diving right in, what is consciousness in your view? How would you actually define it? And what is the so-called real problem of consciousness that you define in your book? It is worth starting with a definition. And the definition that I like to, to begin with, and this is in the book too, is really very simple. And it's more a way of preventing us talking past each other rather than an exhaustive 
ultimate final endpoint of an explanation. So consciousness for me is very simple. It's any kind of subjective experience whatsoever. Uh, it is what you lose when you fall into a dreamless sleep or go under general anesthesia. And it's what returns when you come round again. It is just any kind of experience. Now, the philosopher Thomas Nagel put it also very simply and very elegantly. He said, for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. You can think of this in a more intuitive way of saying it feels like something to be a conscious organism. It feels like something to be me or to be you or to be uh, a hippopotamus probably or an orangutan, but it doesn't feel like anything to be a book or a table or a chair or an iPhone. There's nothing it is like to be those things. So that's how I would define consciousness. And I think it's important to keep it that simple because it makes the point that consciousness is not the same thing as intelligence. It's not the same thing as behaving in a particular way. It really is just coextensive with intrinsically private subjective experience. And so you analogize the problem of consciousness and how it might come to be solved or understood with a couple of other problems that it took a long time historically for people to, to grapple with. One of them is the problem of life and, and what is life and what does it mean for something to be alive? And the other is thermodynamics, just temperature. What does it mean for something to be hot or cold? So I'm wondering if you could kind of compare and contrast those and give us you know, a very brief history of how those ideas came to be understood in order to set up how you think the problem of consciousness can be approached. Sure, that's, that's a good way to do it. So there, there have been these two previous mysteries in science, and they are very different. Both are very different from consciousness, but I think they're both instructive in potentially different ways. So life at one time was thought to be beyond the remit of physics and chemistry. It was thought to require some additional special source, an Elan Vital, a spark of life, something that could explain the difference between the living and the non-living. There was a whole philosophy espousing this perspective, the philosophy of vitalism. And it seems quite intuitive. It's, in fact, it's still intuitive for young children, even today, this idea that there's something special, something qualitatively different about living systems that exceeds their nature as machines of any sort. Now, the problem of life, our understanding of life in science wasn't arrived at by finding this special source. You know, the spark of life, as conceived by vitalists, doesn't exist. Our understanding of life progressed by incrementally accounting for all the diverse properties of living systems, things like metabolism, homeostasis, reproduction, and so on. And as scientists became able to account for these properties, explain them, predict when they're going to happen, intervene to control their expression. The apparent mystery of what makes the difference between the living and the non-living just evaporated. There was no need to appeal to a special source anymore. So this hard problem of life was dissolved. It was not solved directly. It, it went away through incremental understanding of the properties of living systems. That's a useful analogy, I think, for consciousness, because in consciousness now, and certainly this has been the case for a long time, many people, not all people, but many people have a similar perspective about the potential for 
material systems, whether they're brains, bodies, computers, whatever, to explain consciousness. Consciousness just doesn't seem to be the kind of thing that could be explicable in terms of physical mechanisms. So there must be something that makes the difference, that magics experience out of mere mechanism and equivalent to the Elan Vital, to the special source. That's how it seems, but perhaps it's not going to turn out that way. And perhaps by incrementally explaining, predicting, controlling, accounting for the different properties of consciousness in terms of physical mechanisms in the brain and body, then the apparent sense of mystery that attends consciousness may also evaporate, dissolve, and perhaps eventually disappear completely in some puff of metaphysical smoke. Now, I don't know whether this will happen or not, mm -hmm. because we haven't got to the end of this road yet, but that's the pragmatic bet that I'm placing in a science of consciousness. Now, the other analogy is thermodynamics, as you mentioned, heat. And that had a very different resolution. So heat was, again, quite mysterious at one time in the history of science. People wondered whether it was this substance that flowed between objects uh, to sort of reach some equilibrium. People also really struggled to, struggled to figure out how to measure it. And we didn't always have accurate thermometers. And there was a kind of circular problem here, because in order to develop an accurate thermometer, we have this intuitive idea that things are hot or cold. But in order to put numbers to that, to have an accurate thermometer, we needed a scale of temperature. But in order to get a scale, you need some sort of fixed point or some pre-existing confidence in, in some measurements. And how do you do that without a, without a thermometer and, and so on? So it's a very arduous process by which accurate thermometers bootstrap themselves into existence. But when they did, then we were able, well, scientists of the time were able, people like Boltzmann and so on, were able to develop a theory of thermodynamics. And this had quite a different character to how theories of life ultimately developed. In thermodynamics, we now understand heat to actually be something else. Heat simply is the mean molecular kinetic energy of the molecules in a substance, roughly how fast the molecules are moving around, bumping into each other, and so on. This is a very reductive explanation. Heat turns out to be identical with some other lower-level property. Could consciousness be like that? Could it be not something that's a constellation of different properties like life, we don't measure life in the same way. There's no single scale upon which you measure how alive a creature is. Different properties get expressed to different degrees in different living systems, and they are gray areas. But with temperature, there is a scale. It's one thing, and we can measure it, and the ability to measure it meant that we really understood what it was. So you could take that perspective on consciousness too, that it's going to turn out to be identical to some other thing that we could potentially put a number or a series of numbers to. And I think my, my bet is that consciousness turns out to be something a bit more like life than like temperature. But I do find it fascinating to hold these two possibilities in mind. And certainly from where I sit, the science of consciousness in general could go either way. It's there, there are people indeed who are putting forward theories that are more aligned with the temperature view and others like me, that are putting forward ideas more in line with the life view. 
But of course, consciousness is different from both of these things. So I don't want to overextend these parallels. Uh, the biggest difference is that consciousness is intrinsically subjective. You can't put a conscious experience on the table and everybody look at it and, and observe the same thing. It's a very problematic thing to study methodologically. But there are these two different ways in which science has dealt with previous mysteries. And I think it's, it's worth bearing in mind that even though something seems mysterious now with the tools that we have now, doesn't mean that it all, will always seem mysterious. And there are these different potential ways in which the apparent sense of mystery can go away. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I do think that these analogies work really well because, you know, in the case of life, even if you don't know the history of biology there, you know, it, it wasn't like one day some scientists published Nature paper and it was like, all right, we've we figured it out. It it really did just sort of incrementally evaporate as we came to understand a lot of the complexity that is associated with living things as opposed to non-living things. And then the other thing that strikes me about the thermodynamic analogy is you know, we have equations for thermodynamics. We really do understand heat and, you know, heat as, as we, as we know it is identical with, with the movement of atoms and no one says, well, yes, but the movement of atoms is merely a correlate of temperature, a very close correlate, but no, no one sort of asks the equivalent question that they ask for consciousness, which, which is, well, yes, you appear to have the equations and, and these tight correlations and, and observations of the physical world. Um, but these, but, but why? But why is it the mean movement? Like that, you just simply stop asking that question at some point when when the level of precision is high enough. I suppose where this breaks down is that all of these things are happening within the domain of experience, right? The only thing that can be taken a priori is that there is conscious experience. So even the notion that, um, and I think all thinkers on this topic today, although not historically, agree that there's like one one kind of thing in the universe you and, and most people scientifically would say well it's all it's all matter and mind emerges from matter but the converse view which i think is the minority view is no no you've got it backwards and anything that you can say about the material world is actually an inference you're making from your own conscious experience which which is prior to that right those are two opposite poles that have defined the philosophy of mind for centuries now right you have uh, um, sort of physicalism, materialism, empiricism, if you want to give it its old sort of uh, philosophical context. So what we know about the world comes through our sensory organs, but the, there is this idea that this goes back to David Hume and so on, that a knowledge comes ultimately through our senses, but that's itself premised on this idea that there is a physical world out there and we just have indirect access to it. And this is a line of thought that goes from Hume, well, from Plato really, to Hume, to Kant, and, and into the present day. Um, and the question there, as you put it, is indeed, how do conscious experiences relate to or emerge from this material world that we only have a reverse kind of indirect access to through our sensations of it? Uh, the other perspective is idealism. Bishop George Berkeley, others, and there's many traditions that espouse this in one way or the other. The problem isn't how you get mind from matter, it's how you get matter from mind. So the, the mental stuff is primary. Now, and 
that I think, oh, yeah, it's this is not the common starting point for, for science and or for neuroscience either. But there are lots of other options out there too. It's not just those two. Dualism, of course, is the obvious one made famous by Descartes, that there are two modes of existence. There's a physical mode of existence and a mental mode of existence. And the problem there is how do these two domains interact? And dualism, I think, is really interesting because it still seems quite intuitive. So if you ask people who haven't spent years thinking about consciousness, which of the available metaphysical perspectives, wouldn't describe it as available metaphysical perspectives, but which way of thinking about the relation between mind and matter seems most appealing? For many, it's dualism, because it just seems as though conscious experiences are immaterial. Now, the fact that it seems that way, of course, is not a good guide to how it's actually going to turn out. But there are still then other perspectives like panpsychism, that consciousness is fundamental and ubiquitous, and it has the same sort of status as mass or energy or charge in physics. This is neither idealism nor materialism. It's just building consciousness in as an additional component of matter, if you like. So you can think of it maybe as a kind of materialism, but it's, it's, it's a very atypical one. Um, and in the landscape today, I think you'll find people that adopt all sorts of these perspectives, but the majority of neuroscience, in my view, at least implicitly assumes a kind of physicalism, a kind of materialism. Uh, but you can still you can still go about your business as a neuroscientist figuring out how the brain relates to consciousness without necessarily buying wholesale into materialism because you might just say, well, there's perhaps some limits on what this perspective um, can account for. But the way I see it, it's not really, the question I ask myself is not which of these positions is a priori the right one you know, or one of these is going to be the answer. For me, they're all just sort of starting points for how we conceptualize the challenge. And this is why I think I'm a kind of modest, slightly agnostic physicalist, that this is a perspective that's been very successful in science. There are good reasons to think that consciousness is different and more challenging, but there are also good reasons to think that by following the physicalist perspective, but taking conscious experiences seriously, taking seriously that they exist and they have properties of different sorts, that we will make a lot of progress, whether we'll get all the way or not, I think is still an open question. Mm -hmm. So running with this uh, physicalist frame, let's talk about the gradations of consciousness that people are all intuitively familiar with. And the analogy here with heat would be, you know, you can stick a thermometer in something and read out what the temperature is, no matter what it is. Is there an equivalent for consciousness? Is there is some way we can measure the level of consciousness that appears to be there and that we all intuitively experience, right? We, we've all fallen asleep and woken up drowsy and then become more alert later in the day. But is there actually a way scientifically to measure the level of consciousness someone has? There is but it's unclear whether it's going to really play out along the lines of the temperature story. I think the temperature story gives us a nice, uh, if you like, historical ideal for how these things play out, but it's unlikely that everything will, will, will play out this way. Uh, so to what extent do we have that already? Well, we have various ways of putting a number to the level of consciousness 
in human exhibited by human beings or human brains there's this there's this particular measure called the perturbation complexity index developed by Marcello Massimini and Giulio Tononi quite a few years ago now and this is still i think the closest we have and what it involves is injecting a pulse of energy directly into the brain using a method called transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS and then using electroencephalography EEG to record the echo of the pulse throughout the brain energy goes in it bounces around the brain in some way and you you measure that bouncing with EEG and you can put a number to how complex that bouncing is if you if it's very simple if you just stimulate the brain and you get a single pulse that just just spreads out in the brain like throwing a stone into a still pond of water it's a very simple echo so a very simple number that you put to that but if the echo bounces around a lot then it's more complicated and you put a higher number to it in a very quantitative way that's the perturbation complexity index it's indexing the complexity of a perturbation to the brain and it turns out if you do this in the right way you use the right kind of mathematics and so on you get a number that is very useful even in clinics to tell uh, whether somebody is conscious even if they might not be able to express it in behavior there are number of clinical conditions like the vegetative state um, where from the outside it looks as though the person is completely unconscious even though they go through sleep and wake cycles so they may wake up but they show no sign of orienting to their environment or responding to command or making voluntary action but that might just be because the brain is unable to control these kinds of behaviors it's usually assumed that if they can't exhibit any of these behaviors associated with consciousness then they're unconscious but using methods like the perturbation complexity index the pci clinicians are now able to detect cases of residual consciousness these are patients who appear unconscious from the outside but show these complex brain responses when you examine their brain dynamics in this way and what turns out to happen is that people who look like that tend to be the ones that recover mm. uh, okay so, so you can actually, at all. You it's can prognostic actually... it has progno has diagnostic and prognostic value it's not I a see. treatment but but it has some some validation in in the clinic for, for sure but the thing is this is not the same as the full temperature story right and i think there's two reasons for that one is that consciousness even conscious level even the scale between awake aware and anesthesia and coma and whatever it's not going to be a one dimensional thing mm -hmm. there are many different aspects of being conscious at all it's not going to reduce to a single number and the second thing is it doesn't really uh, go as far as these wholly reductive stories that that we were telling about temperature where we know that it's equivalent to the that heat is equivalent to the mean molecular um, and kinetic energy of the molecules or atoms this is still fairly indirect so in practice it means it's quite hard to generalize like if i took this tms thing and applied it to i don't know a, a dolphin brain or something or a, or a bee brain it would be very hard to interpret the answer what the number would mean but where we are with heat for instance it makes perfect sense to talk about the temperature at the surface of the sun or out in interstellar space 
Now we know what that means because the the story runs all the way through to fundamental physics. And there are some theories in consciousness research, like Giulio Tononi's integrated information theory, which attempt to make it run all the way through. And so that it would make sense to talk about the level of consciousness exhibited by any system, whether it's another human or another animal or some sort of cloud of interacting atoms somewhere out there in the void. Uh, the problem is it's very, very difficult. Well, it's in, kind of infeasible to actually make those measurements in practice. So that remains rather speculative. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really intuitive to think about levels of consciousness, just given our everyday experience, right? It, you know, if you tell someone that when you're drowsy, that we can consider that a lower level of consciousness than when you're alert and awake, that make that feels correct. That makes perfect sense. You're additionally saying that neuroscientists have ways of measuring brain activity that seem to map to this, um, even if it's imperfect. Um, it's not going to reduce to one and only one variable. Um, it's more complex than that, but the, the quote unquote level of consciousness one has has something to do with the complexity of the brain activity that one can measure. If we take it in the other direction, so if we start from the normal waking state, there's many people who claim to have reached higher states of consciousness, either through a contemplative practice or through psychedelics or something like this. And I know you've done some collaborations with people who studied the effect of psychedelics on the brain. I'm wondering if you could talk about those non-ordinary states of waking consciousness and how you think about them in this context. Right, good. It's tempting to use this colloquial language of higher states of consciousness, but I think it's also quite dangerous or certainly misleading. Uh, you know, the use of these terms in describing psychedelic or spiritual experiences is very freighted with sort of social meaning that it's somehow more valuable or seeing more, mm -hmm. um, experiencing more widening, opening the filter, all the, these sorts of things. Um, and they are, for me, they're interestingly different. They're not higher or lower or less or more. They really, for me, underpin this, this notion that even conscious level is multidimensional. Mm -hmm. So for instance, in a, in a state of, of, dreaming when you're asleep and having vivid dreams are you more or less conscious than in waking the waking state sometimes you on some dimensions you might be more conscious because you might have more vivid perceptual and emotional experiences but you tend to lack this capacity for self-reflection about what's going on about monitoring the situation so you're in along that dimension you're, you're less conscious when you're dreaming than when you're awake um, now for the psychedelic state, super interesting. I mean, it's, it's a very powerful manipulation. They use small pharmacological intervention into the brain leads to these systematic, pervasive and profound, profound alterations in conscious experience. How to think about that? Well, the, the collaborative work that we've done with researchers like Robin Cart Harris, who was at Imperial now in San Francisco, we measured not the perturbation complexity index. We didn't have the, the TMS thing going, but we just measured, if you like, the ongoing bounciness of the brain activity without perturbing it. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, that amounts to measuring more technically the signal diversity of activity in the brain, how random it is, how many different patterns of activity can we find in the ongoing activity of the brain? And by this measure, 
which we can just call a measure of complexity, uh, the psychedelic state is higher, scores higher than the baseline waking state. And by the same measure of complexity, uh, things go down when you look at states of unconsciousness, like sleeping and anesthesia and so on. So you could say, yeah, psychedelic state is a higher state of consciousness because it goes above the baseline, whereas sleep and anesthesia go down. But I don't think that really makes much sense. What, what we show is that the brain activity is more diverse. It's less predictable in the psychedelic state. That is interesting by itself because we can start to think of how that explains some of the phenomenology of the psychedelic state in terms of it being more free associating, maybe more predict less predictable at the phenomenological level, at the level of how it unfolds in our lived experience. But that's not a full characterization of what the psychedelic state is. And there's many things going on in the phenomenology, phenomenology of psychedelics. Another experiment we did using the same data was to show that there's less information flow between different parts of the brain in the psychedelic state. So there's less coordination between different regions, which again might have something to do with the sort of loss of global coherence that sometimes uh, happens or, or the dissolution of the boundaries between the self and the world. So there's still early, early days, but uh, yeah, I, I just push back quite a bit on the simple story that the psychedelic state is a higher state and there's a, there's a very direct reflection of that in some simple metric of brain activity. Yeah, because even even the word complexity as a measure here is a bit problematic, right? Because if I was measuring all the pixels on my screen right now, and then we just let them all become completely uncoordinated and it became white noise, you know, you could call that a more complex signal because there's less predictability there. But we wouldn't say that the screen in a state of like noise like that is um you know, it's not, it's not complex in an, it's less complex in another sense, right? Sort of our intuitive notion of what complexity and order is, it's related to this notion of order and disorder. So how do you think about that? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And I think that's where a lot of the action is, right? So complexity, it turns out is complex. There are many different ways to think about it. And I think the most intuitive, probably the most stable notion about complexity is that it somehow picks out this middle ground between complete order and complete disorder. If things are totally random, like visual snow, tend to think of that as relatively uncomplex because there's no structure. Uh, but on the other hand, if it's just a black, if it's a grid of parallel lines, then we also say it's not complex because it can be described very simple. There's too much. This space in the middle where there's both diversity and order, both randomness and structure. And there's been a whole history of mathematical and statistical approaches to doing this. And some of them we've tried to apply to, to brain data as well. I, you know, I developed a measure, which I call causal density back in 2005, which was deliberately constructed to reflect precisely this middle ground. The issue was when I applied it to brain data, it just didn't work very well. It didn't wasn't that it showed the results I wasn't expecting. It just was kind of all over the place. It seemed to be very sensitive to unimportant differences in, in the data. It wasn't very informative. Uh, and so it turns out right now that some of the more 
empirically robust and reliable measures when applied to actual empirical real world data just look at one end of this scale so this measure that goes higher in the psychedelic state that has more diversity that's just measuring how much randomness there is mm -hmm. roughly speaking it's, it's measuring something fairly equivalent to entropy it's like how many patterns there are and things it's not really measuring the structure part of it at all but it turns out to work quite well but i would not say that's that's just clearly a starting point because even theoretically it's unsatisfactory because it doesn't pick out this middle ground and that's one of the areas that our group and others are actively working on so what kinds of quantitative measures of complexity that are based on satisfactory theoretical principles actually work in practice too and why don't the ones we already have work very well what, what's going on here is it a bad idea or are they just insufficiently good operationalizations of a good idea mm -hmm. yeah another thing that strikes me here is just riffing on this idea that that consciousness can't be unidimensional has to be multidimensional you know when you guys did those studies i forget what it was but i think you gave people psilocybin and you measured this measure of complexity and, and it seemed to go up and if you've ever taken psilocybin you know that you know especially if you've taken a sufficiently high dose and you're in an interesting room and you're looking at things there's more going on in your experience um, when you're in that state, you're seeing things you haven't seen before, and it fits with this measure of complexity or randomness going up. On the other hand, if you were to give people other psychedelics, in some sense, the opposite would happen. So with 5-methoxy-DMT, for example, people tend to have a very undifferentiated experience where everything becomes very perceptually and emotionally uniform. And there's mm. this experience of oneness, and perhaps the measure would go in the opposite direction there. And I just wanted to mention that to maybe introduce the notion to people of integration and differentiation. So when we're talking about con consciousness, these terms come up. What do those mean and how do we think about them? Okay, but yeah, just on your first point, I think this is also a currently and quite interesting frontier is what are the differences between these different kinds of interventions, whether they're different kinds of psychedelics or, or other, as you say, uh, unusual states of consciousness and how do they get reflected? How can we reflect the phenomenological differences in terms of quantitative differences in brain dynamics? That's definitely an ongoing uh, challenge. But yeah, integration and differentiation, I think it's very continuous with what we've been saying. So this line of work, actually, it's the line of work that first got me really optimistic about the science of consciousness. Um, when I was finishing my PhD about 20 years ago, which is a scarily long time ago, uh, the method in play was, we touched on it earlier, it was really based on looking for just correlations between brain activity and um, aspects of consciousness. Like if you see a house in a binocular rivalry thing, when there's a house to one eye and a face to another eye, and your perception alternates between face and house, you know, what parts of the brain go along with your conscious perception and what, what doesn't? Um, what are the neural correlates of consciousness? And that's really important, but it doesn't help explain why particular patterns of brain activity are associated with particular conscious experiences. And then I read this paper, which had come out in 1998 by Giulio Tononi, you've already mentioned, and Gerald Edelman, who was my former mentor when I was a postdoc uh, in San Diego. 
And it was about, it was called consciousness and complexity. And it made the point that every conscious experience that we have is both highly informative because it's different from every other experience we've ever had or ever will have. Not just that it's composed of many different parts, but that it rules out a vast amount of um, alternative possibilities. So it's highly informative. This is where the word differentiation comes from. It's, it's differentiated from a large repertoire of alternatives. At the same time, every conscious experience is unified. It's integrated. Our experiences unfold as unified scenes. And some philosophers would, would pick at that a little bit and say, mm, is, maybe that's not always the case. But if we run with that for the moment, certainly in normal phenomenology, conscious experiences unfold as unified scenes. So every conscious experience has these two properties, integration and differentiation or information. And so the argument in this paper back in 1998, I think a really seminal paper was that, well, if that's true of conscious experiences at the level of experience, then that should also be true at the level of the underlying mechanisms. So if you want to look for aspects of brain activity or structure that not only correlate with consciousness, but also explain fundamental properties that describe all conscious experiences, then this is where we should look. And that's how this whole business of developing measures of complexity that balance these two properties uh, came about. People started developing measures. There was measures by Olaf Sporns called neural complexity, then my one a few years later, and then others. And I think we see this now in the provocative theory, but very fascinating theory of Tononi of the integrated information theory of consciousness, which is sort of the, the current endpoint of this way of, of thinking. So we, we've touched on the idea of hallucinations and you know, the naive view of perception just of the average person who hasn't thought about it is when you walk around the world, you're having, you're having perceptions. Um, the world is sort of coming into your eyeballs in a way that's not unlike, you know, a video camera recording what's actually out there. And, you know, you could take a tab of acid or you could have a stroke, something could happen to the, to the brain and that would cause you to hallucinate and see stuff that's not really there. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, very quickly you run into situations such as optical illusions where you take a normal, healthy person in a, in a perfectly typical state of waking consciousness and their brain is clearly being full, fooled. You see something moving when, when you know there's no, actually, no actual movement on the page. We've all seen these illusions. And so this brings us to the notion that in some sense, all of our perception is a kind of hallucination. And so can you riff on that for a minute? What does it mean for perception to be a controlled hallucination? Yeah. So this, I think, is where the main arc of the, the story in the book takes, takes off. And it's, it's based on the, the initial idea that everything in experience is a kind of perception whether it's a perception of the world or of the self. All the contents of what we experience when we are conscious are perceptions of different sorts. And what is a, what is a perception then? What determines these contents of our, of our consciousness? And it's perhaps natural to think that perception is a process of just reading out what's out there in the world or perhaps in the body, that you open your eyes, and the world just pours itself into the mind through the transparent windows of the senses. Because that's sort of how it seems, that, that there's a real world out there and, and we 
we sense it and there's maybe the self is the thing inside the brain that's doing the sensing and forming the perceptions but there's a problem with this which is that the real world doesn't come labeled with instructions about how to how it should be read out sensory signals are uncertain ambiguous and they don't have the properties that we experience their causes as having so color is a really good example here we experience colors as being objective mind independent properties of the world but we know they aren't we know there's an electromagnetic spectrum and different wavelengths on those spectrum they don't literally have colors they're just different wavelengths of radiation and the eyes happen to be sensitive to just three of these wavelengths and from combinations of those three wavelengths the brain creates a universe of distinguishable colors which we then experience as being properties of the world so there's a sense even as something as limited as color experience where what we perceptual experience is both less than what's really out there because the eyes are only sensitive to this tiny slice of the electromagnetic spectrum, but also more than what's out there because we don't just experience three colors. We experience a vast repertoire of colors. So color, even though it seems to be an objective property, is a construction that requires both a brain and a world and some eyes, although you you can close your eyes and dream. but we experience it as being a property of the world. What's the best way to think about how this happens? So this is where this notion of controlled hallucination comes comes in, right? That our perception of color of whatever it is, it could be the books on my table here, it could be the the dark sky outside, could be the feeling of the chair at my back, all result from the brain throwing out predictions about the causes of sensory signals and then using sensory signals to update those predictions. So perception in this view isn't a reading out of the world, it's a writing, it's a projection. The brain is constantly making a best guess about the causes of its sensory signals and calibrating those best guesses using sensory signals from the world. And this changes the game in quite a deep way because Perception comes from the inside out, the top down, and not from the outside in. So that's why I call it follow using the word, you know, these weren't my own words. I heard them from, from Chris Frith, who heard them from somebody else, from somebody else. The train trail goes cold after a while. But there's a continuity here with hallucination. We typically think of hallucination as when we perceive something or when someone perceives something that that isn't there or that other people don't perceive. But in this view, all of perception is a construction it's just normal perception our constructions are reined in by what's actually out there in the world in ways that are useful for the organism so that's why they're controlled and the control in this view is really as important as the hallucination i'm not saying that the mind makes up reality Mm -hmm. or that nothing really exists no stuff exists but the way it appears in our experience is always and everywhere an active construction yeah, in you know, in making this notion more intuitive, I thought a great couple of sentences you had in the book, you were just talking about looking at a chair. You just gave a simple example of looking at a chair and the chair is red. And you say, well, the chair isn't actually red in the same way that it's not actually ugly or old fashioned. The surface of the chair is a particular property. It's just the way it reflects light. And your brain is 
giving you this sort of label of redness as a way to track that property of it. And so it's just, it's sort of a way that your brain is using to keep track of something. And when you think of perception in this way, um, it's really interesting. You mentioned a couple terms there that I want to unpack for people. So in this view, perception is, you said it was top down as opposed to coming in bottom up. What is that? What does that mean? And, and I think a good example used in the book of, of thinking about this or, or learning how to think about this is the so-called dress. Right. Yeah. The dress. I think many people will remember the dress. The dress was this photo of a dress, a badly exposed photo of a dress, <clears throat> excuse me, that half the world seemed to see as a blue and black dress and the other half the world seemed to see as a yellow and white or a gold and white dress. And it's the same photo. So what's, what's going on? Um, in a sense, this, this makes very clear that perception is not just a simple readout of the world, because if it was, then why would everybody see this so differently? Um, or at least in these two completely divergent camps. The reason it's happening is because the photo happened to be such that when the brain is trying to make a best guess about what's actually going on, the information is very ambiguous. We normally make judgments about color, not only in terms of the light that's reflected from the object that then is perceived to have a color, but according to the context in which that object is in. If you take a piece of white paper, and if I picked up a piece of white paper here now, I've got one piece of white paper, it looks white to me, subjectively, uh, but the light coming into my eyes is, the ambient light is very yellowish. It's, it's kind of late evening here in, in early November, and all of my lights are sort of indoor yellowish lights. If I took this outdoors, and let's say it was where you are in, in the States, and it was still daylight, and I took it out, uh, it would still look like a piece of white paper. But the light reflected from the paper into my eyes is now completely different because the ambient light is bluish. And so there's this process of color constancy embedded in our color vision, which is actually why color vision is useful, because we see, we see the papers having the same property of being white independently of the actual light that it's, reflect, because it's reflecting, because the brain is taking into account the broader context of illumination in making its best guess about what the surface of the paper really is like. This is useful. If, if color constancy didn't exist, we'd be walking around the world and objects would be continuously changing color as it got darker and lighter. And, and people who do a lot of photography will know this is a real pain. You know, how, do you, how do you take photographs that look the way you want them as ambient lighting is continuously changing? The brain just does this and we don't even notice it. Uh, and this is why the dress really worked because there's very little context in that photo of the dress. So if the brain is for some reason operating under the assumption that that photo was taken in a kind of indoor illumination condition like the one I'm in in my office now, then the best guess of the actual color of the dress is that it's blue and black. That's the conclusion reached by the actual, you know, the, 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 tones, the, the colors of the dots on the page, 
when the brain assumes that kind of illuminant. But if the brain assumes an illuminant is is a sort of a bluish one, like a lot of sunshine, then the brain's best guess is that it's a white and gold dress. So one hypothesis is that we just, for whatever reason, there could be many hypotheses about this and all sorts of experiments, bring to this experience different prior expectations about what the the surrounding illumination actually is. And that's why we can perceive the dress in one of two ways. But the really fascinating thing about it, and forgive me for rambling on a bit about the dress here, is the level of disagreement that it caused. People who saw it one way really could not accept that other people would see it the different way. And this is very revealing to me because uh, it shows the problems we can get into in thinking about perception. The reason people disagreed so strongly is because the brain projects this color experience as being a property of the real world. And the old philosopher said this, Hume said this as well, that the brain paints objects with the colors drawn from, he said it very poetically and beautifully, I can't remember exactly how. Uh, But because we experience these colors as being properties of the real world, then it's very, very hard to accept that some that you're wrong because it seems objectively right we the brain naturally conflates subjectivity with objectivity and it sort of has to do that because it would be very weird for for perception to work in a way that we experienced our perceptions as being unreal i mean there are some clinical conditions where this happens but for brains to guide behavior adaptively it sort of makes sense that the brain constructs perceptual contents with the character of being objectively real. And, but given that it's then almost impossible to accept that somebody else might see it differently. And I think there's, there's a really fundamental lesson here for society, right? It's a sort of generalization of echo chambers in social media, but right down to the level of perception. Yeah. I mean, it immediately reminds me. So the reason that it's not surprising that someone would get so offended if you told them, no, no, you, you know, this, this is being perceived differently by other people. In some sense, you're wrong about the color of the dress. I think it probably really is akin to the feeling one has when, you know, you get into a political disagreement with someone and what you're effectively saying to the other person is, no, you're wrong about your perception of the state of the world. And this gives such a deep emotional feeling with negative valence that, you know, it could almost feel life-threatening. And we're going to come to that in a little bit, what all of this stuff about perception has to do with emotion and regulating our own bodies. But I want to talk first about a special kind of perception that most of us take for granted most of the time, which is that we are selves perceiving the world, that perception is happening to us. And you say in the book that that's not quite right. The self, the feeling that you are you, is itself another kind of perception. And if, if we go with the line of thinking that you've been taking us down so far, having a perception of yourself has something to do with the brain making a guess about the state of things. And so what is that exactly? It's pretty much as you described it. So it's just as we can get away from the initial idea that perception of the world is a process of reading out the self reading the world out through the eyes and the ears we realize now that no perception of the world is this this con- this 
construction, this dance between prediction and sensory prediction error keeps the brain's predictions in line with the world. The same applies to the self. The self is no longer needed to be the sort of recipient of this process. Our experience of selfhood is another part of perception. The brain is making predictions about the body, uh, about behavior, uh, about the past, about the future. And at least in most of these dimensions, my argument would be there's a very, very similar process of the brain throwing out predictions and updating these predictions with sensory data of different sorts. And the upshot of that, instead of seeing a red coffee cup on the table, is that I experience maybe an emotion or a sense of a particular object in the world. This hand is my hand. This body is my body. This part of the universe is, is me. The rest of it is, is not me. So I think we can think of most aspects of selfhood in terms of different kinds of, of perception. And there are many aspects, right? There's low-level aspects of being and having a body all the way up to very high-level aspects of being a person with a name and a set of memories and a cultural and social environment. But the claim here is that all of these rest on this fundamental principle of prediction and prediction error. The self is another kind of controlled hallucination in this view. One, one aspect of selfhood that, that we all feel constantly is the volitional aspect. It feels like I am deciding to do things. So, you know, I can pick up my phone here and the sequence of events as I, um, I don't want to give away the punchline here. The sequence <laughs> of events as I perceive them is I'm already here. Uh, I make my own decisions. I, ha I author the thought. I'm going to pick up the phone. Then I execute the behavior. I picked up the phone. Then I showed it to you. And, and now I'm talking about it. But how much of the sense of volition that is tied to the sense of self is uh, confabulatory? That's one of my favorite words for talking about brain stuff. The brain is <laughs> confabulating things all of the time. How do, do, you know, from a neuroscientific perspective, do we know if, you know, the sequence of events was truly the decision was made and then I did the behavior versus what if I just sort of picked it up outside of the uh, conscious awareness of myself and mm -hmm. then, you know, in the milliseconds following the behavior, I just sort of confabulated the story that I decided it to begin with. Right. So there's, there's a lot to unpack here. We try and do it without taking six hours to get to every aspect of free will, which is always, always a risk. Um, I'm not sure confabulation is quite the way I would put it because confabulation connotes making up a story after the event. You know, there are certain cases where that's a very useful way to describe what people do. Um, people with amnesia, for instance, will often confabulate what happened because they can't remember what happened. Um, you could, argue that memory is an act of confabulation uh, intrinsically but is our experience of making a voluntary action is that a post hoc story the brain tells itself or is it something else mm. i think it's probably something else but it's it's also not what it might seem so as you put it very nicely in many cases though not in all cases but in many cases when we make a voluntary action it seems as though there's this particular mental state of intending to do something that then causes something to happen. So my intention to pick up this cup causes a physical 
series of events, my arm moving and the cup being being picked up. So the content of this experience of volition is partly of causation. So as we can think of, we can think of the experience of the outside world as partly determined by experiences of color. They, those, those are partly constitutive of what it is to visually experience the world. The experience of volition is partly constituted by the experience that a mental state is, has causal power on the world. But my claim is that it's exactly here the same as color. The fact that the content of an experience of, of free will or volition is that it has causal power doesn't mean that this mental state actually has causal power in exactly the same way that my perceiving an object as being red doesn't mean that the object really is red. It's also a construction. But to take the analogy a bit further, it's not an arbitrary construction. We already have established quite nicely that the ability for the brain to construct colors in its visual interactions with the world is very useful. Helps us keep track of, of objects under changing lighting conditions. Helps guide our behavior. So the experience of being the cause of an action is also useful, even if it's not literally true. It's useful for the organism in many ways. Why is it useful? Well, it's useful because we are complicated creatures. We can, we can do many different things in any given circumstance. I could pick up this cup. I could throw it across the room. I could just leave the room. Uh, we have in engineering terms what's called many degrees of freedom. We can do many, many different things. Some of the things that we do are very reflexive. If I put my hand on the old hot stove example, it flies away before I've even noticed. I don't have to make a voluntary decision to remove my hand. If somebody hypnotizes me, I might do something without feeling any voluntary control over that thing. Voluntary actions do come from within in a, in a very, very legitimate way. They, they have their causes more within the previous history of the brain and the body than in the outside world. If I voluntarily pick a cup up, the causes why I did that stem from my past history of somebody who makes tea, likes tea, happens to be in a place where tea is available. It's not that just somebody brought a cup of tea in and lifted it up to my mouth. It makes sense for the brain to be able to distinguish these conditions. And that's what I think experiences of free will are all about, their perceptions of actions that come largely from within. And that to me explains all the interesting phenomenology of what voluntary actions are like. So they feel like they come from within, they feel like they're aligned with our beliefs and desires and goals. And we also have this feeling that we could have done otherwise. And that's another classic aspect of the experience of volition that, ah, I, I could have picked up this thermos instead of the cup but i didn't i picked up the cup and then i picked up the thermos does this mean i could actually have done differently no in exactly the same way again that the content of the experience doesn't justify reifying that content as a property of the world but it is still useful why is it useful well if i picked up this cup of tea and then I found out that it was cold, well, then next time I might want to pick up the thermos of tea instead because it's probably going to be warmer. 
So there's a utility in experiencing voluntary actions the way we do, not because they cause things to happen in the here and now, but because it's useful, in my view, for the brain when it's facing a similar situation the next time. So we experience volition free will so that we can do better in the future. Mm. So you mentioned in the book that you know, in thinking about these things, you say that we do not perceive ourselves to know ourselves, we perceive ourselves in order to control ourselves. And this ties into some of the things that you were saying, but it also gets into this notion of interoception and what having a body has to do with all of your ideas about conscious perception. So can you walk people through what is interoception and what does this kind of sense have to do with our, our sense of self and our ability to feel things like emotional states? The domain of interoception is really very simply perception and sensation applied to the interior of the body. And we, we have many more than five senses. It's often thought that we have vision, hearing, taste, touch, smell, and those are the five senses, and that's it. But we have many other senses. We have a sense of where the body is in space. This is kinesthesia, proprioception. And then we have sensory receptors throughout the interior of the body that are reporting things like blood pressure, gastric tension, and so on, heartbeat, heart rate. The brain has to make sense of these sensory signals too, figure out what's causing them. And so the same principle applies. At least that's what the argument is, that the brain is no direct access to the interior of the body. It has to infer states of the body from ambiguous sensory signals, just the same way it has to infer states of the outside world. And that's the process of interoception, the brain perceiving through, in my view, through prediction and prediction error, the internal states of the body. And what's the content of interoception? Just as like when we have a, make a brain makes a, con, a prediction about the causes of visual experience, we experience an object in the world. Well, when we, when the brain makes a prediction about the causes of interoceptive signals. The idea here is that what we experience is something like emotion or mood. And there's a long history in psychology of thinking about emotion as perception of changes in the body's physiological state. And in a sense, this is just taking that idea and fleshing it out with the language of prediction and prediction error. So that's how I think interoception then becomes continuous with all these other forms of perception that we've been talking about. But with one very, very important characteristic, which is that when the brain is perceiving the interior of the body, it doesn't really care where things are within the body you know, in terms of their spatial location or shape or color. It cares how well they're doing at keeping the body alive. Now, our brain's primary duty is to keep itself and the body going and to do that it has to maintain things like body temperature in very very precise ranges blood pressure in precise ranges um, and it turns out that a good way to, to control a system is to use exactly the same machinery of prediction and prediction error but now the predictions serve as set points as targets for control and instead of updating your predictions to explain away the prediction error, you now make actions to bring the sensory data in line with your prior predictions. So you just change the balance of this 
dance between prediction and prediction error. This in the literature is called active inference. And by doing that, predictions can be used for control. And I think that's what's happening in interoception. The brain is deploying predictions to regulate the physiology of the body and the perceptual content of that process is what we experience as the embodied self. Mm. So is it fair to say that, so in a normally functioning person where, you know, the, the brain, the body uh, are, are healthy and normal, you know, uh, uh, an emotion, how, how do we think about valence? So if we have these built-in set points that the body is literally just pre-programmed to want to keep us mm -hmm. at, whether it's blood salinity or temperature, or just whether or not my bladder is full, are the things that feel good, uh, Am I perceiving things to feel good when the body is moving back towards its set points and bad when I'm actually or potentially moving away from them? Or how do you think about balance there? I think that would be a good starting point. There's, there's, I mean, people know, there are many people who know much more than me about this specific thing of, of valence. Very broadly, I would say that's correct, that valence is going to be a function of some overall assessment about how well the, the, the brain is doing at keeping the body in the state it needs to be in. But there are complications here. So it depends on time scale too. Like something can feel bad at one level, but if you know it's it's essential for your actual long-term survival, maybe it doesn't feel feel so bad. Like if you're running away from a danger, mm -hmm. you know, sure, some of your more immediate physiological variables are going to go go haywire, right? Your blood pressure is going to go up, your oxygen blood oxygenation is going to change, but you might not feel that as, as bad because the context of it is still in line with you staying alive for longer. So valence is not going to be that simple, but I do think it picks out an important dimension along which interoceptive experiences vary. So these guesses the brain is making, whether they're interoceptive or ex exteroceptive, um, they're inferences. And, you know, you sort of mentioned the idea that when it comes to exteroception, you know, if I'm looking at the world and, and photons are coming into my eyeballs, um, the brain is using that information basically to find things, to parse the world into objects that I can actually or potentially interact with. Whereas the interoceptive side of it has a very different character and it's much more about controlling the body. Is, is that a fair summary so far? Almost. I think it's a useful way to, to uh, describe the two extreme points because vision can be used this way we can you know, i can sit here in my chair and i can i can look around and i can use vision to figure out what's there but vision isn't always used that way extraception is not always used that way so if someone throws a ball at me and i'm trying to catch it then i don't really use vision to to find out exactly where the ball is in three dimensional space in relation to every other object turns out when I'm catching a ball, visual perception is doing something that's quite control oriented as well. It's trying to minimize how the ball appears in terms of its angle to the horizon. So in the case of catching a ball, vision is operating in this control oriented manner. And there's a long legacy of ideas of this sort in psychology too. There's, there's perceptual control theory introduced by William Powers in the 1970s and probably much before then. So this distinction between perception as finding out, which we can think of as sort of epistemic perception, 
and perception as geared towards control, which you can think of as kind of goal-oriented or instrumental perception, that's actually, it doesn't map neatly onto extraception versus interoception. But I do think there's, it's not completely orthogonal either. So hmm. interoception, in my view, is more geared towards control, but maybe not exclusively. Like if you have injury to your body, suddenly you want to find out where that injury is, what's gone wrong. And likewise, an extra reception, while you may be largely concerned with figuring out what's there, especially in vision, that's certainly not always the case and definitely not the case when you start moving around in the world and trying to do things, then your perceptual experience of the world becomes quite instrumental too. Mm -hmm. So in either case, interoceptive or exteroceptive, you're saying that these perceptual inferences are the the qualia of conscious experience is that accurate that's the hypothesis yes mm -hmm. and so can you sort of tie that back a little bit to what we were talking about more towards the beginning so so you know i have some perception it's based on some kind of intero or exteroceptive inference yep. it results in some some experience that i have there's going to be some kind of spatiotemporal pattern in the brain that corresponds exactly to that inference. And right. correct me if I'm wrong, you know, no matter what the experience is, there should be some character to that pattern that is distinguishable from patterns that have nothing to do with, with what I'm conscious of. And so neuroscientifically, experimentally, in principle, how would you identify those things and tie them to the experience beyond just identifying them as mere correlates of consciousness? Yeah, this is really good. So this does take us back to a bit where we started about how, how we should approach a neuroscience of consciousness in general. So the nice thing I think about this prediction machine view of consciousness is that it does help us go beyond correlation more towards explanation. So for instance, this whole process that I've been describing of the brain throwing out top-down predictions, which then become updated in prediction errors, that's an idea called predictive processing, prediction error minimization, and there's a number of ideas out there how brain mechanisms might actually do this. In fact, one of the reasons this is proposed as a mechanism for perception is it is the kind of thing that brain systems can do. They seem well set up to actually implement this kind of process. So this already takes us a little bit more past correlation because we can now say, okay, what are what's the evidence or what kinds of evidence should, should we be seeking that attest to this process actually happening? Can we, for instance, build a computational model of prediction and prediction error and then use that to identify the neural signals that underpin that process and then see whether they do indeed go along with different kinds of conscious experiences? That, to me, is the right trajectory to go. It is different from saying which, what activity in the brain generates consciousness or is identical to it. No, we're asking what dynamical patterns in the brain account for in an explanatorily powerful way the character of different kinds of experiences. So that's the hope. Where are we in that, in that, um, yeah, in that trajectory, in that, in that search quite early on? And here, I think, again, there's some humility needed. The, the, the evidence isn't hugely strong. There's some. There's there's quite a lot of evidence that's compatible, 
consistent with this idea where we can see, for instance, uh, there's some beautiful, quite old now experiments by Lars Mukli in Glasgow, where he took an image and then one quarter of this image was cut out. So there was no sensory information coming into the eye for one quarter of the image. But then in a brain imaging experiment, by recording the activity from the part of visual cortex that was taking input from where the image was not, uh, Mukri and his team were still able to decode the contents of the image purely from the top-down predictive signals that were coming back into early visual cortex, which is good evidence that there's not enough information there in the top-down signals to characterize some aspects of what people perceive. But it's very far still from showing that these top-down predictions actually convey the detailed content of of perceptions. But this is where our work is going. There was a paper from BU Hayes Lab in New York just a, a couple of days ago that I saw using measures of information flow, actually using, I think, some of the measures we developed here in, in our lab to measure information flow between different regions. And they had access to this really lovely data where uh, it's called ECOG, so like EEG, but recorded from underneath the skull. And were able to show that top-down patterns of information flow uh, were very predictive of what people consciously perceived, which again is, is very much in line with this idea of the brain as a prediction machine and, and as conscious content being conveyed by the top-down predictions. But there's a, very, there's a very long way to go, but it's really an iterative process of finessing computational models of this process and how they map on the one hand to the phenomenology of conscious experiences, the difference between like control oriented versus non-control oriented, and then seeing whether those can be used to actually uncover the neural dynamics that in practice underlie these different kinds of conscious perceptions. So I think I can imagine your answer, but how, you know, the way that you're thinking about this, how would you answer the question of whether or not consciousness is adaptive versus epiphenomenal? How do you think I would answer that? Yeah, that it would be adaptive. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Uh, but it's not, I mean, it, it, there are at least two ways to understand that question, right? One is this very metaphysical type interpretation that could I imagine a system having exactly the same kind of perceptual functionality, uh, but for which there was no consciousness going on. And here we get back into the this horrible territory of philosophical zombies and is it possible to imagine a creature indistinguishable from you or me from the outside but which is not conscious i do not find this kind of thought experiment illuminating yeah, yeah. So in I. practice because it's like yeah. to actually imagine it you would have to imagine not being able to imagine anything it, yeah I, I don't actually i don't think people actually do imagine such zombies i think they convince themselves that they do but how can you put yourself into the mind's eye of something with no mind Right. So there's there's a lot of there's a lot of, you know, if you go really down into the weeds of what this thought experiment means at the level of philosophy of mind, it it becomes, yeah, that there are objections and there are counter objections because one objection is it's it's not so much that our capacity to imagine it precisely, but the space of what is imaginable and whether we are taking for granted the current laws of nature or some other laws of nature. Uh, but really for me, the whole trajectory of that thought experiment is just going down the wrong going down the, the wrong track. Mm -hmm. um, 
in practice, we are conscious. And in practice, for us, consciousness does seem to be highly adaptive. And there are just many reasons to believe why that's so. Conscious experiences integrate, back to part of our earlier conversation, a lot of information, whether this is very formally according to measures of, of complexity or just more informally. A conscious scene is composed of this massive amount of information about the world and the self unified in a way that makes sense for the ongoing physiological preservation of the organism. You can't be more adaptive than that. So a related, a related issue I'd love to get your take on, it has to do with what I suppose you would call the, the causal efficacy of any particular conscious perceptions or the contents of your consciousness at any given point. And, and to put this concretely, there's, um, there's an interesting sort of um, unresolved problem right now in psychedelic medicine, which is, you know, for those that are unfamiliar, although many, many listeners of this podcast will be familiar, if you give something like psilocybin to certain patients, um, they can have very, very profound therapeutic outcomes after just one um, large dose of psilocybin in which they have a full psychedelic trip, say. So for example, I talked to this man named John Kostakopoulos on one of the podcast episodes. After a single dose of psilocybin, he went from you know being a, a, an alcoholic, a very severe alcoholic that would drink you know dozens of drinks at a time. In other words, to put this in control language, right? He could not control that aspect of his behavior when mm -hmm. he was exposed to a single drink. So the problem was, how do you change this guy's brain so that he comes to be able to control that aspect of himself? And he has this one, this first experience. And he has lots of imagery related to his alcoholism and he sees things that are relevant to his alcoholism and he mm. stops drinking after that one experience. So, so here's the question for which there's two schools of thoughts currently. One is the actual content of that hallucinogenic psychedelic experience necessary for that person to achieve that full therapeutic outcome, or mm. was it merely incidental? In other words, you could design a drug that had the same magnitude and an enduring therapeutic outcome, but which didn't have the psychedelic trip to it. And so I'm curious how you would think about that problem, given what you've said so far about the adaptive nature and uh, of these perceptual influences, that they are in fact models for how to control behavior, which in this case is the goal. Yeah, that's a, it's a lovely example actually to bring up in this context. It's very, as you, as you know, it's, it's, it's actually very current, right? And one way it's current, one thing that sort of surprises me in a way is that there is an active pharmaceutical research effort to develop non-psychedelic psychedelics, things that have a similar um, maybe clinical outcome or mechanism of action, but just don't have the, the, the subjective components. And for me, this is like, well, it's an empirical question, what clinical efficacy they will have. And it's made complicated by all sorts of things such as the placebo effect and patient expectations and so on uh, but fundamentally for me there's a deep irony in, in trying to do that kind of thing as you think about medicines in general when you're looking for let's say you're looking for a, a, a new compound to treat a particular disorder um, there are typically three things you might look for you want a substance that is not poisonous, not toxic to the body, ideally. Uh, you want something that is not addictive, ideally, so that there's less potential for abuse. And you want something that affects the system in question. 
You want some if you've got if it's a problem with your digestion, you want something that affects the digestive system. She's a heart problem, something affects that. that. That's where you would look for good candidate compounds to, uh, to explore for their clinical value. So when we come to something like um, mental illness, whether it's PTSD or depression or addiction, what's the system in question that you're trying to affect? It's not just the brain as, a, as an unconscious mechanism. It's it's your conscious experiences of the world and the self that instantiate particular patterns of behavior for you as the organism. Uh, and it's just interesting to me how, for instance, back in the 1950s, psychedelics were being widely explored for their clinical value, but of course that was, was shut down. And then it wasn't until 20, 30 years later, we, we had these SSRIs, these selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors that became Prozac and now many other brand names. And it's fascinating to me that the reason that these compounds became widely used was precisely because they did not affect the system in question. You could take an SSRI and you might feel a little bit anxious if it's the first time you've taken one or you're starting a new course, but it certainly doesn't wildly change your experience. But that's precisely why they were allowed to be used. And there's a deep irony there. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, the fact that psychedelics have an effect on your experience is an important part of the causal pathway by which they have clinical efficacy. Mm-hmm. It at least makes sense to me to think that way. Um, it may, it may in fact be that you could, you could still get some effect through non-psychedelic psychedelics, but I do think it's likely to be very important. It's certainly important because in psychedelic psychotherapy, there's also this process of integration, right? Mm-hmm. So to really, in cases where it works, it's not just you put someone in a room, you give them a, a trip and then they go home. No, it's, it's how you integrate the experience they've had. And of course, for that integration process to happen, they have to have had an experience to integrate. Yeah, I mean, that is the focal point of the subsequent therapy sessions, um, as I've pointed out elsewhere. And I just thought, I thought your ideas really tied to this in a powerful way because with a severe neuropsychiatric condition, it is your ability to act and to feel that needs changing. And so if I think all the things you're saying are an accurate view of what a conscious experience is, it seems to me at the very least very unlikely that you would be able to design a therapeutic that had the same, the same magnitude of effect, right? but did not have the same subjective effects that that psilocybin and other psychedelics do i would um i would guess i mean my sort of bet on this is they will engineer new i mean they're already doing this you will make drugs that don't have the same hallucinogenic impact and they will have some kind of antidepressant effect to say but i don't think it will be of the same magnitude and, and duration of efficacy i think that's probably right but i also there's a note of caution on both sides of the argument here, because this example that you had of this, this chap who had one trip and resolved his alcoholism, I think these happen, but they don't always happen. And yeah. you still get relapses. And some of the clinical studies now, the first double blind, well, you can't do a double blind study with this stuff, but the first certainly large scale clinical studies are not showing you know, cases where everybody dramatically improves in one arm of the study and nobody in, in the other. There is an effect. It's, it's not as strong, certainly as, as we might have hoped to begin with. There are expectation placebo effects going on too. So that I think there's, there's, there's a lot 
well there's still just basically a lot of work to do in in how who because there's going to be individual variation too not everyone's going to benefit from a psychedelic intervention in the same way uh, it's 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 a very personalized thing but there is to me just to circle back a a very reasonable uh, argument that the experience matters and why does it matter well one one reason is and this gets back to other part of our conversation that a psychedelic experience reveals to you in the first person that the way things seem in your conscious experience is not necessarily the way they are your perception is revealed your perception is revealed to be a construction in the first person in a way that can be quite powerful that's one reason i think the experiential component is important for its thera- potential therapeutic outcome mm-hmm. no i loved um i love the analogy that you drew with a drug that was meant to treat something about the digestive system directly or indirectly that drug is going to have to impact the digestive system because that's the thing whose function is not optimal but for these kinds of conditions the thing that is not optimal is is literally the thing in your brain quote unquote that is responsible for how you act and how how your experiences feel in the moment right i mean the the counter argument again would be there might be a way to uh influence the brain that doesn't affect consciousness but that still has the same therapeutic outcome you're still affecting the system in question which is the brain but you maybe don't need to um, affect the conscious experience that goes along with particular brain states and i just think maybe that's the case but it seems unlikely to me given this this i think reasonable belief that conscious experiences do have an adaptive function and they are involved in our in our behavior so before we let you go is there anything you want people to know about the new book that perhaps we didn't touch on or perhaps some way of summarizing it that you think is appropriate oh well i think you've you've, i've really enjoyed this ramble through different aspects of it i mean of course we we haven't covered all of it i don't think that would be a a sensible idea to do i mean the other topics i do talk about in the book um a little bit are go into a bit more detail on these other theories like integrated information theory and this free energy principle which is almost a very physics-based um equivalent when we think about the brain as a prediction machine and what does that really mean when we drive down as far as we can in terms of in physics uh and then i talk about other animals what can we say about consciousness in in other animals beyond the human and finally uh the possibility of machine consciousness and just to say one thing about that without giving the whole game away but this whole idea of of consciousness and self being rooted in perceptual predictions that are themselves geared towards physiological regulation and keeping us alive to me that that induces an intimate connection between consciousness and our nature as living machines and in fact, one of the titles that we didn't choose for the book in the end was going to be Beast Machine, being a beast machine. Descartes had this notion of a beast machine, and he was trying to use it to deny consciousness or the, some important kind of consciousness to other animals. In the Cartesian view, 
non-human animals were beast machines. They were flesh and blood machines, but the flesh and blood status didn't can endow them with any morally or ethically relevant conscious status. But I think the view I've come to, and it's not just me, there are many other people uh, who've been saying similar things. People like Lisa Barrett-Feldman, Antonio Damasio is a big influence on me, Mark Soames, um, uh, Evan Thompson, that consciousness, self, life are strongly continuous. All our perceptions are ultimately grounded in regulation, physiological preservation of the body. And there's no sharp divide between what we might call the mindware and the wetware, as there is in a computer between the hardware and the software. So all this for me puts the possibility of artificial consciousness or machine consciousness in a slightly different light. For me, it's unlikely to just emerge as a function of disembodied intelligence in a computer as we have them now. It's going to be much more tied to uh, the imperative for, for preserving life status, for self-regulation all the way down. Doesn't mean that artificial consciousness is impossible, but it does suggest that conscious machines might also have to be living machines. Mm -hmm. One final thought I would love to get from you is it's to do with, um, I'll unpack this a little bit more, but I suppose the question is <laughs> um, what would it feel like if it felt like we understood consciousness and is there even, <laughs> you know, can we even answer that? So there's this anecdote in the book from um, Wittgenstein that you mentioned that's maybe worth retelling for people, but you know, let's imagine, let's imagine 50 years from now, we've just made incredible progress in neuroscience. We have so much more knowledge than we do now and we feel like we completely understand the necessary and sufficient conditions for what creates any given conscious percept you can inject some pattern to the brain and create create a percept for someone at will and all of the pieces seem to be there and yet it would probably not feel like we understood it and so what was that anecdote with Wittgenstein and is there some limitation to our own brains that prevent this from ever feeling like a complete story right yeah this is that's um, that's a really nice connection there so yeah there is this this beautiful it's in, in, in a way it's another motif through the whole book uh and the anecdotes it's, it's lovely so Wittgenstein is going for a walk in the garden after breakfast with Elizabeth Anscombe, who's another philosopher, former student, and his biographer. And I have no idea about the veracity of this conversation, but it's it's been so reported now that Wittgenstein asks Anscombe, why did people think it was logical that the sun rotated around the earth rather than the earth rotating on its own axis? And Anscombe says, well, I suppose because it seems as though the sun rotates around the earth. Seems as though the sun rises in the east, sets in the west. And Wittgenstein says, okay, but what would it seem like if it seemed as though the earth rotated on its own axis? And I love this because it's not just simply saying that how things seem is not how they are. Like it seems as though the sun goes around the earth, but it actually the earth rotating on its own axis, we go from Ptolemy to Copernicus. Wittgenstein's point is more subtle. It's that even when we understand th how things are, things still seem the same way. They can seem both ways. It seems it's gonna seem the same way. Uh, and I love that, I love that point. And I think it applies throughout 
the topics we've been talking about, and this is something I try to I try to express in the book, that understanding perception as a top-down, inside-out controlled hallucination doesn't mean that I no longer see colors as being properties of the real world. Of course I do. Things still seem the way, but at the same time, everything has also changed. But now you've taken it to another level. What would it seem like if it seemed as if we had a complete uh, explanation of consciousness? This is very interesting. I have no idea because we don't have one. I don't think it's a case that we have one. We're just not recognizing it. I just think it is still um, not a solved problem. There are two options to me here. One is that we have this kind of, whether it's a sudden or a gradual aha moment, like, ah, oh, yeah, it makes sense. It was complicated, but it makes sense. This is how consciousness arises from the wet wear of the brain, if it turns out to be a sort of materialist, physicalist picture. Um, but another possibility is that it never really feels intuitively satisfying, that we have scientific explanations that allow us to explain why particular experiences happen when they happen, what character they have. We can intervene, we can control, we can predict and so on. We can do all the things that scientific explanations typically are assessed on, prediction, control, explanation, but they may still lack this intuitive sense of, yeah, now I really understand. I think that's a, that's a real possibility. Does that mean it's an incomplete science? Not necessarily, because there's a sort of self-referential aspect here. It may be because we are trying to explain ourselves, something that we instantiate, that our bar for what counts as intuitively satisfying may be implicitly different. That's a possible outcome. I, what, what that means in practice is that I don't think we should judge scientific theories of consciousness first and foremost on whether they feel intuitively satisfying. Well, Anil Seth, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you for a, a lovely conversation. I really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure.